Okay, for those who are following along, we're in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, Providence. Good to see you today. And yeah, I'm a hick from the mountains of East Tennessee, you can already tell. Um, I'm Cameron Devity, one of the teaching pastors at Sea Light Omaha. And yeah, I'm, I'm not from around here. So this, this accent was forged in the mountains of East Tennessee, which means I am a bona fide redneck. I make no apologies about that. And so I love... Um, SEC football, four-wheel drive vehicles, it's really a sin to drive a two-wheel drive machine, and I love hunting woodland creatures, don't judge me, okay? Now, um, about a year ago, I was a lead pastor in Kentucky, and then suddenly in God's providence, I met this crazy man named Chris Haruska, and he talked my wife and I into moving all the way from the south to the Midwest, and it's been a sheer joy to be here. Been here for about a year now, and we've got our first baby on the way. Baby Knox will be here on December 1st, so... Uh, yeah, it's exciting. Now, let me offer this caveat real fast. I am going to be preaching out of some weakness today, just to admit that. Like, I, I know these men probably model it well, but preachers aren't perfect men. We go through the trial just like you do. And uh, the man that was like my dad, I, didn't, I don't know my dad, but my grandpa, he suddenly died of a stroke about two weeks ago, and so I'm still grieving that. And in addition to that, I, I have been so healthy over the course of my life, I have had debilitating migraines the last two weeks out of nowhere. So if I hope what I say today will be halfway coherent, that the Spirit may interpret it if tongues come out. But anyway, y'all pray for me in my weakness. I'm trusting God will use me to spite myself this morning. Well, it's my joy to wrap up your sermon series through your core values. And as a church, you've got four core values that define who you are and hopefully drive everything that you do. And you could probably recite the core values by this point. So number one is gospel, number two is formation, number three is community, and then number four is mission. And so you use a down-directional arrow to speak to the gospel because it's the glorious news that Jesus came from heaven to earth to save sinful people like us. Aren't we thankful for that? But then in response to his rescue mission, we respond three ways, upward in spiritual formation and worship inward in community, and then outward on mission. And so when Jesus saves us, we don't just sit around. It, it causes real change to take place in our hearts. And so this morning, my focus will be on our last core value, and that is mission. And so most simply, we get our mission from where? Well, the great co-mission in Matthew 28. And it's simply this, go out and make disciples. And so again, to s- summarize, Jesus doesn't just save us to to sit. He doesn't just save us from our sins, but when we trust in him, he simultaneously sends us out 
so we can carry this same message of redemption and freedom to people around us that really need to hear it. Now, now so much could be said about mission. I, I agonize, where do I start? What do I do? Do I trace the grand thread? Jesus, help me. Well, this morning, I, I really feel like God has burdened me to speak on a more narrow focus, a, a real practical message on this truth, and here's the title. Uh, we should be urgent in our evangelism. Sounds kind of churchy, but that's my main burden this morning, that we should be urgent as we share the gospel. And again, this comes from Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Um, now, a few weeks ago, I got a phone call from a dear friend of mine. His name's Jim. He's 70, and we've been friends for decades. You know, I grew up without a dad, and this man was a dad to me in many ways as, when I was a kid. And so he called and asked. He said, hey, could, could you and Brittany come to Kentucky and hang out with me? And initially, I said, there's no way I'm loading my very pregnant and nauseated wife into a car and driving 20 hours to Kentucky. Uh, we love you, Jim, but now's not a good time. Listen, my attitude did a 180 when I heard these words on the other end of the phone. Cameron, the doctors think that I have terminal cancer, and I might only have a few months to live, and I really need to talk about end-of-life issues with you and your wife. Well, another thing you need to know about my friend Jim is that he's not a believer, I have prayed for him for years and tried to share the gospel, but he's not been receptive. And so we knew there would be great cost in going to Kentucky, gas money, potential vomit for my wife in the car, but yet this sense of urgency compelled us to make that haul down there. Uh, we, we simply couldn't tolerate the thought of a dying man that we love um, standing outside of the kingdom of God forever. And so church, I believe that this message, Jesus' aim, Paul's aim in this text to is to instill in all of us a sense of urgency as it relates to sharing the gospel. And so again, here's the big idea. It's real simple, kind of churchy, but I hope memorable. Practice urgency in evangelism. And so if you're new and you don't know what evangelism is, it's simply this. It means spreading the gospel or the good news of Jesus, just through a personal witness. And so Paul's trying to help us to see that, hey, there's a pressing need to press in the gospel to individuals around us that don't know it. We've got to be urgent as we do this. So let me remind you real quick of the flow of Colossians to this point. Um, he's been teaching us that in Christ we have a brand new identity, and out of this new identity that we have new ways of thinking and then new ways of living. And in chapter 3, he gets real practical and he shows us that we're to live as new creations in the workplace and in the home. Well, now he takes a turn. He's going to show us the posture we should take toward those outside the church, namely unbelievers. Now, it's fascinating to me that out of everything that Paul could have said about how we relate to people in the world, non-believers, that he prioritizes evangelism. Now, why does he make this a priority? Why is there such an urgency? Well, I'm going to throw another big E word at you. Ready? It's a real Christian word. Eschatology. Have y'all heard this before? I'm not trying to impress you. It's just simply a word that means the, the end times, the, the doctrine surrounding the return of Jesus. So there's an eschatological ring 
to this text. And what I mean by that is he's conveying that there's urgency. It sounds old-fashioned because Jesus is coming back sooner than later. I don't know if you've heard this preached in a while, but the reality is, is that if people don't turn from their sins and trust in Jesus before he returns and sets up his visible kingdom, they will be left out of his kingdom and separated from God forever. I mean, that's what we see in Scripture. Well, then here's another reason for urgency. Yeah, I mentioned the fact that Jim's diagnosis motivated us to go back to Kentucky. Well, the reality is we're all dying, aren't we? You know, even if we live to be 109 years old in the big scheme of things, it's really not that long. We are a significant yet really small blip on the radar of eternity. And we cannot assume, Providence, that people around us, our loved ones, our friends, our family members, are always going to be around. And the decisions that they make in this life with Christ determines how they're going to spend eternity. And so therefore, my my burden for me, I want to live this out. My burden for you is that we would take on the posture of the Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, when he said this, I preach as a dying man to dying men. And so Paul is going to help us to do just that in this text with really practical instructions. You know, there's two keys to effective evangelism, to effectively sharing the gospel. When you think about it, think about it as a coin with two sides. And so here's the first aspect. Number one, if you're taking notes, pray with urgency. As we seek to share the gospel message with loved ones, we've got to absolutely make sure we're praying with urgency. And so notice verses two through four. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So when Paul says, hey, persevere in prayer, I think it links us back to chapter 1. You don't have to flip there, but to Paul's prayer for them in the opening section of that letter. And in one nine, we see he basically prays that they would come to experience the fullness of Christ. He wants this church to come into all the blessings that Christ's death and burial and resurrection has secured for them. And in chapter 1, here's a summary of the benefits that Jesus secured for us. We have a brand new strength that comes from Jesus living in us. And can I just say to you that Without this strength that the Spirit gives, and a lot of my, my dad basically passing suddenly, and a lot of my wife being pregnant and a little bit hormonal, if I can be honest. I love her, and she's okay with me saying things like that. We talk about it. And in light of me being uh, <coughs> headache-laden, it's only been by the strength of God that I've endured these past few weeks. In Christ, we have a brand new joy, a joy like I didn't know before apart from Him. In Jesus, we share a heavenly inheritance. And chapter 1 reminds us that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so Paul's praying that, hey, continue to pray, to to press in, that all these things will be increasingly true of you. You would realize your brand new realities in Christ. And then he says to be watchful, as verse 2 says. So remember when I said this text has an eschatological or end times ring to it? Well, Here it is. He's saying, hey, as you pray, pray with your eyes wide open 
and watch out for the second coming of Jesus. So we're to pray for this beautiful bodily appearance of Christ that we'll actually get to see while we're, if we're still living. And of course, uh, we'll see him when we're in Christ. So we pray in a watchful way, but we also do it with thanksgiving. Because when Christ returns, it means we get to be with him in glory. Salvation is perfectly completed in us, and we'll enjoy all the full blessings. Now, that's what we have in Jesus. Paul then shifts the attention, after calling us to pray in that way, to the plight of the people outside the church. And it's obvious that based on the specifics of what Paul calls them to pray for, that his concern is they too would know the same gospel that the Colossian church has come to know and that we have come to know. He is concerned for the unbelievers in the city and beyond. And so why is Paul so concerned? Well, we could play a really quick game of opposites here. Remember all those blessings that we rehearsed that we have in Jesus Christ? Well, think about friends and family members, co-workers. Get some faces in your mind. Apart from Jesus, they do not have the power of God working in them to carry them through life. They don't have brand new joy in Jesus. They do not have this heavenly inheritance that, that we have. And this is because they have not been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the glorious kingdom of light. So for them, um, when Christ comes back, as opposed to it being a, a beautiful day, it will be a tragic day. So what I'm trying to help us to see is that our ultimate motivation for sharing the gospel is not guilt-induced, not because pastors tell you to, not because some random redhead from the mountains is telling you to. It really should be overflow. Our passion should be that, hey, we've been so changed and set free by the gospel that we're anxious that people we love, people around us also experience the relationship we have with Jesus. And, and salvation is a supernatural undertaking. And that's why Paul leads in with prayer. And so notice again verse 3. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. And so as Paul calls the church, calls us to urgent prayer, he asks prayer for two things. And this is another good place to take notes. If you've got a notepad, number one, pray for gospel opportunities. And again, evangelism has two sides. And the first side of the coin is the sovereign working of God. Understand that only a sovereign God has the ability to usher somebody in from darkness to light. Only Jesus and the Spirit of God has the ability to save sinful people. So we have to trust in God's sovereignty, and we've got to pray that in His sovereignty, that He would arrange divine opportunities or appointments for us to participate in. So in verse 3, this is what Paul's praying for, for open doors. He wants open doors so that he can share about the mystery of Christ, so he can share with those who need to hear. And Colossians has taught us that the mystery of Christ is that Christ is in us when we trust in him. So we should continually seek opportunities to share this glorious reality that when we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus, he literally takes up residence in our hearts through the person of the Holy Spirit. You know, the way I do this providence, I have an iPhone note with lists of names, 
family members, friends, neighbors, and I pray that their hearts might be open to the gospel. And I use a book like Operation World, and I pray for close countries like North Korea, that, that God's Spirit could break in, that they would be open to allowing the gospel in. Um, in the City Light family, one of my key roles is that I'm working on church planting residencies and trying to accelerate our church planting process, and I'm always praying, God, help us to see new communities, new cities that might have openness that's planting churches, planting the gospel in. So think about this. In Paul's case, the gospel opportunity he was praying for was the chance to be let out of jail. He concludes verse 3 by saying, on account of which, I'm in prison. Now think about how different this might be if you're in prison. I'd be praying for better food to get out of here. I'm incredibly claustrophobic. But Paul's not praying for the release for personal comfort. He wants to be unleashed from his shackles so he can keep unleashing the gospel. Now just think for a moment how different this is in the way that we tend to pray. I know that my prayers and oftentimes the prayers of American Christians, they're so shallow and selfish in comparison to this. You know, a couple of days ago, I had the chance to serve uh, my wife as the City Light Kids Coordinator for the West location. And I got pulled in to serve in the four-year-old classroom. And that was an unexpected joy and challenge. I didn't see it coming. So that day, they tasked me with sharing about the Holy Spirit. And I thought, well, this would be a great chance for a pastor such as myself to press in the truth of the Trinity to a bunch of four-year-olds. And keep in mind, I don't have kids yet. And so on the whiteboard, I wrote two simple sentences. Okay, class. I wrote up there, there's one God, and our God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I said, who would like to read that for me? Silence. I thought, man, I'm a horrible teacher. And then suddenly my helper said, "Uh, Pastor Cameron, four-year-olds can't typically read. I said, okay, I got that. And so I realized I had to go the oral route really quick, and we did, and, and they were really quick learners. They got it. And so after getting that, I had really high hopes for our prayer time. As I took prayer requests, I envisioned, hey, Pastor Cameron, pray that the Spirit of God might come alive in me, or that I would be empowered to share the gospel at my preschool this week. And, and as I took prayer requests, there was more silence, awkward silence. And then suddenly a little girl raised her hand and said, hey, hey, Pastor Cameron, I'm, oh yes, honey, you know, bring it on. Um, can you pray I get a kitten this week? And I said, uh, yeah, sure, Spirit of God, empower this little woman to get a cat. I mean, I, my hopes and dreams were dashed. You know, listen, that's not a terrible place for a for four-year-old's mind to be. You know, but the, the sad reality is oftentimes our adult prayers aren't that much different, are they? You know, it's okay to pray for daily bread provision. We're instructed to pray in that way. But if I can just be honest with you, Oftentimes, my prayers don't move beyond Jesus, help me, bless me, and keep me. So much orientation around creature comforts. But but listen, Providence, understand that we are shortchanging ourselves, and we are shortchanging the world if we only pray in self-centered ways. Yes, God is a sovereign God, and He will bring about His salvation in the lives of people around us, but our sovereign God works through means. And one of the means he works through is the prayers of his people. 
So through prayer, as we pray for unbelievers around us, family members, friends, co-workers, we get to be involved and we get the privilege of being a part of God's redemptive mission in the world. So we pray for gospel opportunities. And you'll be shocked if you start praying for them. God will be so gracious to give them to you. It's a dangerous prayer to pray because people start popping up, but pray for it. It's a privilege. And then number two, we should pray for gospel clarity. This is so striking to me. Verse four says that I might make it clear. So this is another aspect of God's sovereignty and salvation. He works through our prayers. His Spirit's always working. He gives us gospel opportunities. And then God works in people's hearts through His Word. Understand that the Word of Christ carries intrinsic power. Therefore, Paul says that we should pray that he would simply make the message clear. Paul's not worried about being clever or innovative, nor should we. The gospel carries power. It's sufficient to save. And so his concern is that he would simply be faithful to share the gospel message clearly. And again, this should be our concern as well. Because think about it this way. If the Apostle Paul, the preeminent New Testament theologian, I mean, he wrote Romans for crying out loud. If he's asking for this little fledgling church to pray that he would make the message of Christ clear, how much more should we always be praying and rehearsing that message so that we can make it clear. Listen, we cannot take the gospel for granted because humanity's tendency is to distort it. If you just look around, you see all kinds of ways we try to do this. For some people, it's we get saved by Jesus plus good works. Or for the Colossians, maybe Jesus plus deep spiritual practices. And it goes on and on. But we always have to be clear that the gospel always has, always will be. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So we should always be crystal clear in our thinking, in our worship, in our proclamation that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As a church, we should be utterly familiar with the message that our sin separates us from God. But thankfully, Christ came from heaven to earth to save us. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve to die. Three days later, he rose again. And if we simply trust in him, we too are raised to newness of life. So our aim in ministry, our aim in evangelism should always be to simply shine a spotlight on the word of God, to explain it clearly, and then just get out of the way and let the spirit of God do his thing. And then Paul closes verse 4 by saying, which is how I ought to speak. And so you see this language laid in this text that there's this necessity, this compulsion, this urgency. He was commissioned by God and he carried a burden for people that had not yet heard this saving message. So I'm 35 now. I can't believe I'm halfway to 70. I'm getting there. But when I was in my 20s and new in the faith and growing as a Christian, I began to develop this burden to proclaim the gospel. And I got this chance in seminary to spend a summer in in Thailand, Southeast Asia. And I can remember praying, God, please just give me opportunities. I don't know a lot. I got a few verses, one semester or seminary under my belt, but send me and help me. And sure as the world, God was faithful to give me incredible gospel opportunities while there. 
Uh, I had a lot of failures, a lot of Buddhist monks that weren't interested in the least bit, but I'll never forget the day it all came together. One day I was on public transportation riding a bus, and I struck up a conversation with a young Thai lady. And I learned that she had made a pilgrimage from several miles away, several hours away to visit a famous Buddhist temple in the area. And she said, well, sir, and she learned my name, Cameron, why, why are you here? And I didn't really know what to say other than, well, I'm here to do the best I can to share the love of Jesus with you and people in your country. And when I said the name Jesus, her eyes grew huge. And she said, yes, Sue? I said, yeah, Jesus, I think that's what you said. And she said, this man has been coming to me in my dreams. Now listen, y'all, I'm Southern Baptist by background, not all that charismatic, but my paradigm got shifted just a little bit, okay, while I was there on that trip. And she proceeded to describe two different dreams that she had had on two different nights. And she said in the first dream, the first night, she found herself in a barren, black and white, dried out field. Dry, the wheat was dry, the grass was dry, and she felt scared, alone, and isolated. And then she said she looked to the far corner of the field, and there was this imposing figure, this terrifying being. And she asked who he was, and he said, my name is God, and it thundered, and it, and it woke her up. And she woke up terrified. And the very next night, she dreamed that she was in the exact same field, but everything was different this time around. It was vibrant, alive with color, animals, birds singing, flowers, a warm breeze was blowing, and said she felt safe and and warm and, and happy. And she looked again to this far corner of the field, and suddenly a man was approaching her, walking her way, and he had a huge smile on his face, and he wrapped his arms around her and hugged her, and said she'd never felt more loved or affirmed in that moment. And she asked the man what his name was, and she says, my name is Jesus. And then she woke up from the dream. And there on that bus, young 20-year-old man from the mountains of East Tennessee in a southern accent, she says, hey, can you tell me more about this man called Jesus? And I said, yeah, I can. It'd actually be my privilege to. So her, her bus was about to stop and let her off. I had to get way to this other part of the city And I had a Thai Bible in my hand. And in the last moments we had together, I turned to John and highlighted some verses. I said, listen, I promise you, if you will read this book and and read these verses, like this is the story. This is the book by the man that you saw in the field. This will lead you to that man that you saw in the field. And so my last memory I have of her, she gets off the bus, hustling away to the temple. And instead of going into the temple, she's on a park bench in front of the temple reading that Thai Bible. And so my prayer, my hope is, my expectation, there could be some grand reunion one day between her and I in heaven. So Providence, what that taught me in that moment was that if we'll be faithful to pray urgently for gospel opportunities, and if we'll simply speak the word clearly, don't water the word down, pass it on to people around us, and don't compromise it, God will use people like us to usher people into his kingdom. I mean, I never thought he could use a guy like me. I come from bad stock, so to speak. Single parent home in the mountains of East Tennessee. Didn't have a lot of great prospects for my future. But yet God called me out, chose to use a guy like me. And the glorious truth in this text is that he guarantees that he'll use all of his children 
around the nations, in our neighborhoods, if we'll simply be faithful to depend on him, to pray for opportunities and to pair that with his word. He'll call people to himself. And so we should pray with urgency as we think about the task of evangelism, understanding it's a supernatural endeavor. And here's the second thing, and it'll go faster. Number two, we proclaim with urgency. And this comes from verses 5 and 6. If you're taking notes, proclaim with urgency. And so it's really a work of God from start to finish. But we could say God's responsibility in evangelism is to work through His Spirit, to call people to Himself, to give us opportunities. And then our responsibility is to proclaim, proclaim His Word with urgency. And so the first way we do this is through our lives. I do believe there is a lifestyle component to effective evangelism. Notice in verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And so in the Bible, especially in the book of Psalms, when we see the word walk, it means to lead a particular way of life and to walk in wisdom toward outsiders or unbelievers, as Paul tells us to here. And so wisdom in Colossians is the unique wisdom that comes from God, and, and that wisdom changes us. In Jesus, when we hear the gospel, again, we get a brand new identity. It shapes new ways of thinking, and it gives us brand new ways of living. So I think what Paul's doing here is simply calling the Colossians to live out newness of life in Christ in the presence of unbelievers. Hey, there should be a distinction in the way that you walk around people that don't know Christ. And he gave practical instructions earlier to put off sin, put off sexual immorality. And in place of that, put on compassion, kindness, humility, forgiveness, and love. So I think Paul's saying that as opposed to conforming to the world, as we walk in the wisdom of Jesus, we contrast the world. And it's been my experience that when our lives contrast the world, it causes people to slow down and to take notice. And I noticed this in a clear way when Brittany and I moved here to Omaha about a year ago. Uh, we have moving parties around City Light. We're always recruiting people to help people move in. It's a really effective strategy. So as opposed to getting your uncle and your cousin, get 35 people and your truck gets unloaded a lot faster. And so 35 City Lighters show up to my apartment, massive moving truck filled with boat shoes and pastel polos and my wife's monogram southern vest and everything else that comes from the south, deer heads, guns, and we, um, we back up. And initially, my neighbor is a little bit ticked off because we parked in a handicapped spot. I'm like, bro, chill out. We're only going to be here for an hour, and then we start unpacking the truck. And so we unpack the truck in under an hour. And my neighbor, whose name is Eric, he's watching attentively the whole time, and he's just mystified. I could just see him smoking and just mystified the whole time. And as the team is packing up and, and leaving, and he's like, hey, hey, Cameron, before you go, I have to ask one thing. I said, okay, Eric, ask. He's like, first of all, who in the hell are you, and who in the hell are they? That's his words verbatim. <laughs> I said, well, Eric, I'm Cameron, you know, a new pastor, just came from Tennessee, and this is my church family. And he goes, listen, I've lived here for a decade. He's kind of like an old man RA, I guess, in an apartment, just hanging out there. He gets paid and watches people and does his thing, but he said, I have watched dozens of families come and go, move in and out, and he said, almost every move is nothing but frustration and cussing 
And husbands talking back to their wives, parents cussing their kids, but he said, something seems different about you guys. It, it seems like you really actually love each other. And he was so mystified by that. And it just caused me to realize that, wait a second, our, our joyful behavior is going to give me this great chance now to point this neighbor, this old man RA, to the one who fills our hearts with joy. It's been my experience that when people begin to notice something different about you, it gives you a great chance to point them to the one, Jesus Christ, that has made you different. And then again, this this kind of undertow, this undercurrent of urgency shows up again in the second half of verse 5. Paul says, making the best use of the time. He's basically saying, hey, we've got to seize every single chance we have to press the gospel in. We can't take for granted people are always going to be around. And I've discovered that our chances increase, our opportunities increase when we live a Christ-centered life that contrasts the lives that people typically see. You know, people are genuinely intrigued by authentic faith. I was playing golf the other day in a golf event, and the man asked me, you know, how did you get from Tennessee to Omaha? And I basically said, well, brother, it's just a call of God. God spoke and we came, and he had no category for that. An unbeliever goes, man, can, I, can we have coffee? Can I hear more about that? That sounds crazy to me. Just don't take for granted how countercultural your lifestyle is when you're following closely after Jesus, and it causes people to perk up and pay attention. And then secondly, not only with our lifestyles, we have to proclaim Jesus in our speech. You know, verse 6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. So in this context, Paul's saying, hey, our speech has to be filled with the grace and truth of God. We have to actually open our mouths and be verbal witnesses to the lifestyles that we're leading. You know, there's this old quote. He didn't really say it. If you study history, St. Francis of Assisi preached the gospel at all times, used words if necessary. It's always necessary to use words, by the way. It's a message. It's the message of reconciliation. So, yeah, you've got the lifestyle, which is important, but you have to couple that with a verbal proclamation of the gospel. And Paul says this, this witness, this verbal witness of the grace and truth of God, it has to be seasoned with salt. Now, in our context, salty carries a negative connotation, right? Like, southern boy got really salty in about May, and when there's still snow on the ground, I was questioning my calling, Spirit of God, where did you take me? Winter does not end in this place. Salty, winter time. Salt destroying my truck, by the way, too. There's a lot of salt going on. But for the Colossians, salty meant to be winsome and to be witty. It is meant to be a pleasant person, to choose appropriate words, to smile as you speak, to speak in such a way to arouse a thirst for listening. You know, when I considered this, you know, it just came to me that, that our posture as we proclaim the gospel should match the posture that our Lord took toward us in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus was always faithful to boldly proclaim the gospel, but he did so thoughtfully. He did so with stories. He did so winsomely. And most importantly, he did so lovingly. I mean, he did not hold back in preaching the truth. He came preaching the message of repentance. So he had to do that so we could get to heaven. But he always did so in love because that's how people best receive a message. You know, winsome and loving words tend to open people up, whereas harsh words shut people down. 
Y'all know Jack and Linda Aaron. Have you met this couple? Half of y'all probably got saved in their living room, but it's an elder and his wife uh, with us at City Light Omaha, and they have literally led dozens of people to faith in Jesus. They are more effective in their evangelism than any pastor I've ever met. And I think one reason they're so effective is they're so winsome. They're so hospitable. They're so friendly. They just love people so well. Their house serves as a perpetually free Airbnb of sorts. They've always got guests in there. And so imagine you're, you're a young couple, and this is a real-life case study. And they've loved you well. They've helped your marriage. They've invested in you. And then suddenly, Jack says something like this, Hey, would you mind if I draw you a picture of uh, what my faith means to me? And he draws this bridge illustration. I don't know if you've seen that before. If you've been loved that well, you're likely going to listen to that man. You're not going to tell that guy no. And this sounds cheesy, but the way I put it is the gospel is typically received well when it's served on the platter of winsome words. When you've actually got a smile on your face, when you actually care about the people you're sharing with. It doesn't mean people will automatically trust in Jesus, but they'll usually hear out if you are winsome. And then not only should we, we would we be winsome, Paul concludes this section by telling us to be contextual. And all this means is that we never change the message, but we do adapt our method based on who we're talking to. Verse 6b says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So for example, if you have the chance to share the gospel with somebody on their deathbed, like I did two weeks ago, a church member calls me and their grandpa is dying, has literally hours to live. And I don't know this man. I'm not going to take too much time to build up a relationship. I'm going to, with love, cut to the chase. And I just said something like, sir, you've literally got hours to live. And I've heard your family has shared with you multiple times, but you've been so close off to that. Are you ready to meet your creator? And praise God, the moment I leave and his grandson comes back in, he trusts Jesus and is saved. So there's moments you just, you don't try to build a relationship. You just cut to the chase. But there's other times you adapt your method. And so even though I exercise urgency in going down to see my friend Jim in Kentucky, the man dying of cancer, the Spirit of God helped me to see that in that moment I had to pump the brakes just a little bit. You know, I I tried to weave the gospel in, but the sense I got from the Spirit was, Cameron, just be quiet and listen to this man's heart. I mean, he was unpacking things that I had never heard before, and he disclosed to me that he was an agnostic, borderline atheist, but wants to believe, but he has an incredibly difficult time believing that there's a God in light of suffering that he's experienced in his life. He grew up with an alcoholic dad that beat the heck out of his mom, and He just wondered how his mother, who went to church every Sunday, how God could allow that to happen to her, and it makes him doubt God. He's a real intelligent man, and he struggles believing that God's Word really is inerrant and inspired. So my posture I took in that moment was to simply ask good questions, to try try to diagnose and see how I can best speak into this man's life. I mean, I gained new ground, and so now, Brittany, we're praying for him, we're texting him. And we're sending him care packages like apologetics books like C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller doing all that we can to help him to see Jesus through the doubts. And you know, Jim has not yet placed his faith in Christ, but I remain hopeful. I think I can see traces of God's grace in his life. Um, He's not an emotional man, 
But just before I left, and I've never heard these words out of his mouth, he says, Cameron, I love you. And he hugged me, and he said, you're like the son that I've never had. And so y'all, y'all pray for Jim. He's not a believer. He might still yet only have months to go, but we're doing the best we can in a contextually appropriate way to press the gospel in. Just yesterday, I, I've been praying for him, and he sent me a text that said, man, thank you for caring and for supporting me. It means so much to know that good people are pulling for you. And I've never heard things like this out of his mouth. So City Light, City Light, Providence, I close with this. You're in the City Light family. You know, practicing urgency in evangelism is not getting in your car this afternoon getting a megaphone and screaming at people. Hey, trust Jesus, turn or burn before it's too late. Get sanctified or get chicken fried. It's not that, though I have seen people take on that methodology from time to time. I do think it's trusting in God to give us the wisdom to know how to best advance the gospel in our networks and spheres of influence. You know, for some of you, it might be this afternoon having a flat-footed gospel conversation with a family member you've been putting off forever. I call that method manning up and doing it. Just go to them and say, listen, I need to share what's most important about me with you. Or for others, it might simply be taking that brand-new neighbor out for coffee to get the relationship started. So whatever it is, the important thing is to get the ball rolling. Practice urgency and evangelism. We have to do that because the, the, the souls literally hang in the balance between eternal life and eternal death. And God has chosen to use us as means to transfer them from darkness to his kingdom. Let me stand, let's stand together. Let me pray for us. Our communion servers will come. And then we'll take communion and sing. Uh, Father, um, just thank you this morning for all that we have in Jesus. Um, Thank you for saving us, for calling us out, and then also sending us on a a beautiful mission of redemption. And Lord, I pray that we can see the mission as such, a gift from you, that we have purpose and meaning and significance. And so God motivated us this morning, not out of guilt, but out of um, just love for you and just compassion for the people around us. God, as we even leave today, in this moment, be bringing to mind names that we could record on the board as we exit this place. And then, God, I want to pray this morning for um, maybe unbelievers who don't know you, that today, that they could indeed turn from their sins and trust in you. God, thank you so much for this church, for, for Jared and Andrew and the other faithful leaders. Thank you so much for their invitation. And, oh, God, I pray that you would use this word despite my weakness this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.